Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Amanda Fortini. Amanda Fortini is a contributing writer for The New Yorker and a contributing editor at Elle magazine. Her essays have been widely anthologized, including in the Best American Political Writing Series, and she's been nominated for a James Beard Foundation Journalism Award. Her work has also appeared in The New York Times Magazine, Rolling Stone, The New Republic, The Paris Review, and Wired. Please join me in giving a very, very warm welcome to Ms. Amanda Fortini. Thank you, and thank you for coming. Now, I have the pleasure of introducing everyone up here. Um, first, we have Dr. Todd Boyd, who is a race and pop, pop culture scholar at the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts. He appeared in the Academy Award-winning documentary, 20 Feet from Stardom, and is the author of several books, including Young, Black, Rich, and Famous, and the new HNIC. Please give him a hand. And we have Dr. Ingrid Rowland. Uh, she is an art historian at the University of Notre Dame School of Architecture. She's a frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books and the author of several books, most recently, The Collector of Lives, Giorgio Vasari and the Invention of Art. <laughs> and lastly, we have Neil Gabler. Gabler. Uh, he is a cultural historian and the author of several books. Everyone here is the author of several books, including Winchell, Gossip, Power, and the Culture of Celebrity, and Walt Disney, The Triumph of the American Imagination. He is also a regular contributor to the New York Times. So please give him a hand too. All right, so um, we are clearly, we're just gonna start, jump right in. We are clearly in a moment of reckoning um, when it comes to artists and their behavior, uh, especially uh, sexual predation. And, and this is also causing us to start to grapple with um, the art of the past and artists of the past. You know, Picasso was a brutal misogynist, Hitchcock, psychologically abused his, his uh, actresses, Ezra Pound was an anti-Semite, etc. So I want to jump right in and ask you, each of you, if you could give an initial brief response to the question, as we learn more about the bad behavior of today's artists and of artists, as, as we reconsider um, the artists of the art of the past, to what extent can we still continue to separate the appreciation of great art from its creators? Is that tantamount to celebrating the creators? Is it possible to, celebrate, to separate the biography from the work? Just, in a, just to sort of, we can, so we can get a sense of where you stand initially. Maybe you want to start, Neil. Well, let me start. I, I mean, I, I know you want something very, very brief. Mm -hmm. and, um, <laughs> and it's, uh, I'm not, no, I'm writing, I write long books, as some of you know. Uh, so brief is very high. Clear my throat, it takes 10 minutes. But, but let, me, let me just start with the definition of art itself, because mm -hmm. I think it, it, this is, is salient to your question. When we talk about art, um, you know, we, we often want to dichotomize. Um, there's the art and there's the artist. Right. There's aesthetics and there's morality. Um, I think that dichotomy is entirely false. Uh, art is not an object. Uh, in fact, I, I think of the Bishop Barclay idea of the tree falling in the forest and if no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? If you have an object uh, and no one's there to observe it, can it be art? So, I, I think not. And, and art is an experience. Right. It's an experience of an individual and, and an object. And so when you look at it in those terms, um, it becomes a very complicated issue, but it also becomes a very individualized issue. So, so when, I think the, the question that we phrased for this, for this evening is can we, mm -hmm. we don't do anything. Can you, can I, that is a question. Can I separate, you know, the bad behavior of someone in the past uh, from their work? Can I do it? Right. And that's very individualized. What about you, uh, Ingrid? Can you do it? <laughs> what, what, what are your thoughts on this initially? That if you go back to the ancient world, you have the names of artists, you have things that they may have done, you have no idea about their lives. And same thing for the Middle Ages. So the objects are there separated from biographies. You get to the 16th century and you start getting artists' biographies, but still the object and the person are somehow really separate. 
It's true, we don't know much about Shakespeare, for instance. I mean, yeah, much at all. Uh, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's an excellent point. So historically, they have been very separate. What, what about you, Dr. Boyd? Well, you know, when you talk about anything that's creative, uh, you know, it doesn't create itself. It's created by human beings, and human beings are inherently flawed. Um, so, to me, you know, it is a false dichotomy because there's the art and there's the person who created the art. If something is created by a human being, it's going to bear the signature of the person creating it. That can be obviously something profound and illuminating and compelling. It can also be something quite fucked up. Right. Um, <laughs> that's all part of it. Uh, so I, I think, you know, any desire to separate what someone creates from the person who created it is often something on the part of the person observing it who wants what I call uh, like a purity of experience. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, if you say that you appreciate a certain artist or writer or filmmaker or what have you, in some way your endorsement is also a commentary on yourself. And people like to think of themselves as good, uh, morally upstanding individuals. And so in that way, there's often uh, attempts to sort of get around um, the things about the person who may have created something that are unpleasant. But ultimately, I think uh, that's all part of it. Um, you know, and as long as you recognize that flawed human beings uh, often have the ability to create really interesting things, and you recognize that and you discuss that, um, you're on the right path. It's when people go out of their way to sort of apologize for uh, someone they like because they like it and they think it reflects on them um, that you, uh, I think, start to get in dangerous territory. Are there, in, are there inst instances where the artist is so flawed or so fucked up or so what they've done is so morally reprehensible that, you know, we can't, I'll ask you first, I guess, that we can't, that renders the art, you know, uh, we can't enjoy it, or it's just, you know, off limits in some way. Well, yeah. you know, okay, if I were to say D.W. Griffith, the <laughs> director of Birth of a Nation. Now, Griffith was a racist. Birth of a Nation is racist propaganda. There's no confusion about either of those things in my mind. Some people might disagree. But Birth of a Nation sits at the cornerstone of what would become American cinema. So you recognize what this is. It might be embarrassing to people of a different era. Mm -hmm. It may, it, it was always wrong. It was wrong when it was made. It was problematic when it was made. There was never a time when it was cool, right? <laughs> but people in positions of authority in society at the time deemed it President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, history written in lightning, right? So it fit with a certain sentiment of the society at the time when racism was acceptable, but racism was not okay, it wasn't nice, it wasn't good. It's just times have changed, and when times change, people began looking at it differently. I recognize it as a historical artifact. I recognize its historical importance, but I think it's very important as well to talk about the person who created it and what they created and all the damage that they've done. Right, right. So this, this brings me to a, 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 the question of art of the past. You, I mean, you brought that up quite, um, gave a quite you know, good example here. Um, what do we do with art of the past that, you know, because cultural, ethical, moral, societal, you know, standards were, were, as you said, quite different. So how do we, how are we to view art of the past? Well, it's a matter of fact, mm -hmm. not a matter of, of, uh, of uh, setting a norm. I mean, we have a statute of limitations, let's face it. I mean, we don't have a statute of limitations for people like Bill Cosby and, and Harvey Weinstein because they, they haven't passed that statute of limitations. Maybe they never will. But I think for many artists, they have. I mean, we don't talk about Charlie Chaplin, who was also a child predator and married teenage girls. Uh, we don't talk about him in the same way we talk about Woody Allen. Right. Um, but again, I get back to the fact that as trying to separate aesthetics from morality is a fool's mission. 
because aesthetics and morality are intertwined. So when we talk about Birth of a Nation, each of us individually has to go to that film and decide whether we think this is you know, an aesthetic, a powerful aesthetic experience that is untainted by our own moral values. Uh, but that depends on what your moral values are. And, and you talked, uh, I think, Todd, about the purity and trying to approach a work with purity. But there's also a, a sense on the other side of trying to approach a work with maturity. It's mature to say that Leni Reifenstahl's Triumph of the Will, which, by the way, I don't care how, how beautifully photographed it is, is a celebration of Adolf Hitler. And in film classes, they will talk aesthetically about that movie without talking about the fact that you cannot watch that movie, regardless of what your morality is, you could be completely amoral, but you cannot watch that movie without taking some moral stance. And, and I think that's the thing that we, we have to examine is, I mean, what an artist does in the present or in the past is going to be influenced by our own moral feelings about that person. It's just we don't, as, as Ingrid said, we don't know a lot about people of the past. Maybe we know too much now. Maybe we know so much that it compromises our experience of the work. Ingrid, do you want to talk a bit about art of the past and maybe even give us some specific yeah. examples? Yeah. Yeah, I have some examples that I could show you. So if we could have the first slide. That's the Madonna of the Rosary done by Michelangelo Merisi da Caravaggio. Caravaggio who's now really become, in many ways, the most popular Renaissance painter of anybody. His books are outselling the other Michelangelo. And this was painted after he skewered a gangster named Ranuccio Tomazzoni on a tennis court in Rome and had to flee a murder rap. And Ranuccio was going to kill him if he didn't kill Ranuccio. So the, there was a certain amount of self-defense, and I think the fact that he was a painter meant that his hand was faster than Ranuccio's was, and I'm sure his profession saved him. But what you can tell, this man became one of the most compassionate painters that the world has ever seen, and he fled to Naples, and what you're seeing here is a picture of the Madonna handing out rosaries as a comfort to people. And you can see those hands just up there grabbing the rosaries. And so this man who did something that he was terribly sorry for, he was crabby, evil-tempered, a snob, a lot of other things, but inside him he really had this moral sense. And because of his painting, I think he really has deeply affected people. And so this is a case where he did something that he's not happy with, and it shapes his art permanently, mm. but it shapes it in a direction of repentance and compassion. And I think the next slide should be, that's just a nativity that he did where he's got a mother and child. He lost his mother to the plague when he was a kid. And so what you see in a lot of his paintings are little old ladies as mother figures and little old ladies in Caravaggio always get the point. And here what you can see, again, it's this compassionate vision that takes in women and children as well as men. And so it's the whole thing about human frailty. He knows he's a fragile human being that's done terrible things and that we all do things we regret. And his art really tries to address that. The next slide shows a bust that was the center of a Bernini show here. This was done by the great Baroque sculptor John Lorenzo Bernini. It's his mistress Costanza Piccolomini, whom he caught kissing his brother Luigi, and her hair was all mussed up. She looked rather <laughs> like that. It was a year after he sculpted this, and he chased his brother all the way across town from St. Peter's to Santa Maria Maggiore. Luigi Bernini was 26, John Lorenzo was 40, so Luigi ran faster. Luigi got into <laughs> Santa Maria Maggiore. John Lorenzo's pounding on the door, saying, I'm gonna kill him, I'm gonna kill him, I'm gonna kill him. Mama Bernini had to be brought from the house next door to the church, peel her big son off her little son, and then what John Lorenzo did is pay two thugs to slash Costanza's face. Mm. The wound was so bad that it took a month to heal, and so it must have been infected. She turns out to have been a noblewoman, and 
was quite fancy, even though she's shown here quite informally. She recovered and became a prominent art dealer in Rome. Mm. But in that case, he was an absolute beast. The solution to his behavioral problems was to get him married. He had 14 children in rapid mm. succession. And so mm. that's how Mama Bernini solved it. We can't look at Rome without running into things that John Lorenzo Bernini did. He completely shaped Rome. I don't think he ever felt any regret about this. And unlike Caravaggio, who really teaches you about compassion and repentance, Bernini's doing a whole different kind of thing, brilliant, and in many ways a solace to people through its beauty, but there's a whole other discourse there, and what he did to Costanza Piccolomini is bad. So speak. Clearly, <laughs> artists are complicated. Yes, it's, this is a complicated equation. Yeah. And I guess if I can just give you the last one, if we can have the slide, and then in a second, do the sound effects. Don Carlo Gesualdo da Venosa was a Neapolitan nobleman who caught his wife in the arms of her lover one evening when he said he was going hunting, but he really thought something was going on. And he skewered both of them, chopped them up, and put the bits out in front of his palazzo in Piazza San Domenico, one of the central squares of Rome. It is really the most socially chic square. It's where Thomas Aquinas was in his day, when Gesualdo was growing up, the great philosopher Giordano Bruno was in the church right next door of St. Dominic. And this man made some of the most beautiful music in the Renaissance. So what I'm going to give you is about 45 seconds of one of his motets. And what this is, is Christ and his passion. It's actually a psalm, but it says, O oh, you who walk by the wayside, Stop and think, do you know, have you ever known any sorrow like my sorrow? And there, oh sorry, that was my mic. So what you're going to hear is this incredible chord change that's pegged to the alto voice, which makes me happy. So the altos get to go to a C natural, and it, to me, is one of the most beautiful things mm. in the world. So, Don Carlo. I don't know any chord change in music that gets me more. There's one Bach does in his St. Matthew Passion that's up there. It's a B natural by the altos. <laughs> but, <laughs> and so here you've got three fairly wretched people, two of whom acknowledge how wretched we are as human beings. And one's too macho to do that, but he... This is a heritage that I can't imagine letting go of just because they were horrible. So, <laughs> so what, about the, what about the wretched people, the more, more contemporary wretched people? Um, you know, we've seen, we've seen quite a few um, artists and entertainers get fired, have their projects canceled, you know, have their shows canceled, you know, transparent, um, you know, with Louis C.K., all, all of that. Is there any sense in which you, you mourn uh, any kind of the drain of talent that may or may not be happening, depending on how you view it? Is there any sense in which you mourn it more if the art is on, you know, this level? Uh, does it depend on what they're creating? Yeah, I'm wondering if you guys can talk about that. Well, I think, um, first of all, I didn't know we were bringing audio visuals. I would have... <laughs> <laughs> I would have bought a Kanye video. Uh, <laughs> um, 
And a few tweets, maybe. <laughs> uh, uh, post one of Kanye's tweets. Um, you know, you, you referenced several recent examples, and I think there's a lot tied up in that. First of all, um, the things that, you know, I mean, we can come up with a list that most people, I'm sure, are familiar with based on what's happened over the last, what, six to eight months. Um, first of all, this was going on in Hollywood for a long time, and when people complained about it, they were ignored, and in some cases there was retaliation against them. Um, and then all of a sudden, the floodgates opened. Mm -hmm. um, people started talking about Bill Cosby a few years ago. Um, and one of the things that has come up, say, in that example, people have very, a lot of people do, have very sort of fond memories of Bill Cosby on The Cosby Show. And at some point they began to think that Heathcliff Huxtable and Bill Cosby were the same person. And Bill Cosby did everything in his power to make people think that was the case. It was a very effective cover because behind the cover of this fictional character uh, was this individual engaging in all these uh, you know, problematic acts. And you sort of link that to Harvey Weinstein um, and a number of other people. It's interesting to me because someone was asking me, someone who doesn't really pay much attention to culture, uh, to explain the sort of Weinstein situation. And I said, look, Harvey Weinstein had good taste. Um, it's not often the case when you find somebody who's such a reprehensible human being who in turn has good, good taste. So, um, you know, when I think you look at the fact that this was going on, it wasn't being dealt with, and then all of a sudden there's this huge like flood of incidents and then people are getting fired. It's like, well, if it had been dealt with the way it should have been dealt with all along, mm -hmm. you wouldn't have this situation that seems like it's out of control. It's that everything was suppressed, but of course everything you suppress, eventually it comes back up. And so, again, if we were able to as a society, and I, I sort of hesitate to say we, because this is at some level individual, if people were able to sort of deal with the truth, a lot of these issues would not plague us in the way that they have come to plague us because to say, look, this was a really reprehensible person who was in a position of power and they had great taste and they produced um, or greenlit some movies that I find really enjoyable, I find that to be a very honest and open statement. It's when you want to somehow make the person who's reprehensible uh, uh, satisfactory so that you can appreciate the art without that guilty conscience. That's bad. where the problem comes yeah. in. Yeah. What, what, what about you, Neil? Well, I think it's such, uh, we're dealing with a calculus here. I mean, we want to simplify the issue, but, but it's not simple. And, and the calculus is, we bring again our morality to something. We bring a different morality to everything. Sometimes our, our sense of morality informs a work in such a way that you know, we could never get over it. I mean, Bill Cosby, partly because we think he's a hypocrite and partly because we think he's a rapist and he's a convicted rapist, we will never, most people, I think there is a consensus about this, so I, I use we advisedly, but most people will never be able to watch The Cosby Show or any kind of Bill Cosby routine because our, our sense of morality is such that it obliterates the the art experience mm -hmm. and destroys the art experience. But then there are individuals, and it, Woody Allen may be an example, and Manhattan may be an example of this, where Woody Allen's bad behavior in some way informs the film in a, in a negative way that gets us to look at the film differently than we looked at it originally. I mean, the fact that we know now that you know, he may be, you know, have, may have molested a child, um, you know, that may change how we look at his relationship with Margot Hemingway, with uh, Mariel Hemingway, yeah. not in a way that necessarily makes us censorious about the movie, but in the way that turns the movie from a comedy into, a, into an odd sort of tragedy, in fact, maybe her tragedy. And so we respond to it differently. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it, you know, it's, it's a very individualized thing, as bad acts are very individualized and very elastic. I mean, Bill Cosby is the extreme example because he's a convicted rapist. But when we talk about Aziz Ansari, 
whose career has been definitely damaged because he asked a woman home and she felt, and she came back with him, and she felt that she was being pressured to have sex with him. I mean, you know, is that, do we now exclude his work? Do we now, as we watch his work individually, those of us, I mean, I'm not a great fan of his in any case, but that would not, frankly, you know, and I say that because I'm not sure that would change my response to him. And again, you know, you know, Bad acts are, are elastic. Um, people are even elastic. Right, of course. You know, we haven't talked about the, the sense in which, you know, people change. Mm -hmm. When Woody Allen did stuff when he was young, is it the same Woody Allen? Or do we go back and say, I can't stand Annie Hall because I know he's a bad guy? Uh, he wasn't a bad guy when he made Annie Hall. Probably. I don't know. Arguably, I'll say. So, you know, again, it's... People are different over time. They're not the same person. Their actions are different over time. Our own morality changes over time. Um, so should there be a kind of, I mean, I guess that there's two questions that arise from that for me, which one is, can an artist who has, you know, done something reprehensible in the past rehabilitate themselves and have their career resuscitated? And, um, like, is there some kind of statute of limitations on this? Because a lot of the things that we're hearing now and I do think it's for some of the reasons that Dr. Boyd said, because, you know, it's like the pipes have burst, you know, mm -hmm. but we're hearing yeah. about things 20 years in the past. Um, like, how, where do we draw the line in this stuff? Well, but we yeah. don't draw the line. Where does society I think, I draw think, the line, I guess? I don't think society does either, because consensus almost never develops. Mm -hmm. Consensus has developed around Bill Cosby. But has consensus developed around... Well, but Bill Cosby also went to court. And there were like and 60 women. You know? There's a yeah. large number of women. There are two court cases, and then very recently there's a verdict. I think it's important to be careful. And, you know, I had an experience with Bill Cosby a long time ago. Um, he didn't I give you any pills, did he? <laughs> no. Um, I remember I met Bill Cosby, and I say this, I've met a large number of very well-known people over the course of my life. I can say this with absolute certainty. Bill Cosby is one of the biggest assholes I've ever met in my life. <laughs> when I encountered him so many years ago, i never forget, I called my parents back in Detroit. They were still alive. And I had a conversation with my stepmother, who was a huge Bill Cosby fan. And I said, look, you know, I met this guy, and this guy is just an absolute asshole in every possible way. <laughs> and she turned this into, like, what did you do to make him treat you? Like, it, it, I, I was the asshole. Um, she did not want to hear it. She's no longer alive. I wish, for selfish reasons, that she was alive when the verdict came down in that court case a few weeks ago. Just to sort of, you know, remind her of that conversation. But let me say this. When Bill Cosby's name first came up under these allegations, uh, what was it, two or three years ago, at the time, and this was something I took note of, because it brought up the name Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas, another bad person for multiple reasons, uh, including his beliefs, um, as well as his actions. But the problem I had with both Clarence Thomas and Bill Cosby before more recent developments was these individuals, two African-American men, were held up as the worst examples of individual in society when, of course, this was not something confined to these two individuals. <laughs> right, right. So in some ways, what happened with Weinstein and Louis C.K. and everybody else you mentioned it's like, okay, now we have a much broader representation of the fact that there are men of all races who have been guilty of some of these reprehensible acts. And so we have to be honest here. We don't judge and we will never judge everybody the same way based on larger circumstances that exist in our society. There are some people who will never be considered redeemed because of who they are by society. There are other people for whom individuals will grade on a curve, they'll figure out ways to sort of accommodate them and say, well, they did this, they did that. 
need I mention the person occupying the office of the presidency? Right. So having this conversation with that present circumstance being what it is, at some level means all of this that we're talking about is ultimately irrelevant because it did not stop him from becoming the president. And, and I think you're absolutely right that who gets redeemed has a lot to do with power, class, race, gender, all of these things that, you know, we often don't talk about. Are we at a turning point now in our society where, as we're having this conversation, as some of these people who have, you know, had power are being, are having, you know, there's, like I said, their shows canceled or are being, you know, sort of pushed off to the side where room is being made for people who have formerly been um, artists who have formerly been marginalized or silenced or excluded where we're going to hear we are hearing more from them or we might hear more from them do you think what do you what do you think Ingrid are we at some kind of turn or, or <laughs> someone who has something to say yeah, no, about it it's my 91 year old mother who's mm -hmm. been saying look men aren't going to change mm -hmm. <laughs> My father was not one of these, but one of the things that's so striking is the way that with all of these individuals, it's not really about sex as sex, it's about sex as dominance. And it's really going back to our lizard brain and performing certain actions as a way of exerting dominance over other people. And that's not really artistic at all. It's mm -hmm. just... I keep thinking, Italian nature shows, I live in Rome most of the time, and Italian nature shows are different than American nature shows. And so they're having the whole primate scene where there's the gorilla up on the mound. And we always think, oh, there's the alpha male, and here are the happy ladies consorting only with him and grooming him. An Italian nature show, under a log, there's another gorilla making out with one of the females. <laughs> putting the horns on the alpha, and so then the alpha sees the backdoor gorilla, and he galumps over, and the backdoor gorilla slinks off, and then the, one, or the female who's put the horns on him starts grooming him. It's, that's how Italians view life. It's much more realistic. Are, are, are we at a turning point, Dr. Boyd? What do you think? Well, no. No? <laughs> no, but... Um, you know, it's just like having a camera on your phone. You can take pictures of everything now. The things people take pictures of have been happening all the time. You just didn't necessarily have a camera in your pocket at the, you know, opportune moment to photograph it. Um, one of the things I hate about uh, the way culture often works is people ignore something forever. And then they start paying attention, and then they go crazy. <laughs> so it's like, okay, for so long, uh, acts were ignored or suppressed. People who engaged in these acts got to be rich and famous. And then we reached a point when people started paying attention and holding them accountable. I think the problem is people, in some cases, lose the ability to distinguish. There are extreme examples. Weinstein, Bill Cosby, um, maybe everybody else who did something wrong is not at the same level. There are degrees, right? It can't be this one-size-fit-all, and I think that's sort of the moment we're in now is people's inability to distinguish one thing from the other because they're so caught up in the moment. It would be good if we reached a point where we held people accountable accordingly as opposed to saying one size fit all, if you slip up, boom, that's the end of your career because all of these things are obviously not the same and of varying degrees in terms of what should and should not be done. Nevertheless, I, I, think, I think you're right. This has been a corrective, and it's a good corrective. Uh, you know, you can say it's gone too far, and maybe it'll revert back to the mean, uh, but right now, 
I mean, I, I know, uh, you know, you, you've, you've read it, and I've read it, and I've even heard it, you know, personally. I mean, men in Hollywood are shaking in their boots. <laughs> They're shaking, and they should. They should be shaking in their boots. And, uh, you know, I was just reading, and I'm sure many of you read the article in the New York Times uh, that Liz Merriweather... Uh, you know, who did New Girl, has three new shows on Fox, and they're all women. Women directors, women writers, women producers. That wouldn't have happened a year ago. A year ago it wouldn't have happened. And now it's happening everywhere. Now that may change, this may be a moment, but my instinct is, it's not a moment. Mm -hmm. This is a change. You know, uh, they've had to come to their senses because, you know, it, they'll, they'll be out of work if they don't. Well, it's interesting because we're talking, we're talking, we've talked so far only about men. Um, are there examples you can think of? Well, I mean, because obviously women are not immune to behaving badly. Maybe they don't behave in the same ways that, you know, men have behaved badly or they haven't had the, they haven't had the power. The opportunities. Yeah, the opportunity to do that. But I'm just wondering, can <laughs> so we talk about the gender aspect of it a little bit here? Yeah. What about Donatella Versace? <laughs> 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 well, okay, there's a good example, I guess. <laughs> or if we want to call that, I, mean, I had to show a slide to my students and I wanted family resemblance. I was actually talking about architecture and so I had the two Versace brothers and Donatella when she had a recognizable face. <laughs> and, um, I think she'd kill. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I was, as you said that, um, not to dismiss Donatella. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm thinking about the, what is it, White House Correspondents Dinner from a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, Michelle Wolf, the comedian, who was incredible. Um, and she's incredible. The, the sort of courage to stand up in that snake pit and like just get in their ass. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and then there's this response that she was inappropriately criticizing Sarah Huckabee Sanders. <laughs> um, and it was interesting to me, the sort of people who said, this is wrong because she's a wife and a mother. And I thought, well, she is a wife, mother, and every day she gets up and lies for Trump. Now, is she forgiven those lies because she's a wife and a mother? No. If Trump would actually go to the event and sit there like George Bush did, not that I'm defending George Bush, but he at least went and sort of... It, you know, acknowledge what the event was and, and took the jokes in stride. Trump sends her as his proxy, and she is a representative of Trump's agenda, but the issue is, no, it's inappropriate for you to make jokes about her in that way. And so looking at that, it's like to talk about this power imbalance that you mentioned, it's like if you're going to represent Trump, if you're going to stand up and lie for Trump, you can't then hide behind this privileged position when someone starts to criticize you. In that case, to me, her comments as comedy were very, very appropriate. And I found it interesting how some people got to be really, even people who were normally critical of Trump, got to be very moral about, well, it's inappropriate to criticize her in this case. I think, you know, you have to recognize that if you're going to put yourself in that position, um, you too are going to be a target and you are representing what I consider to be a very problematic agenda. Right. And the, qu the question of, you know, you're a wife and a mother, of course, that's, I mean, I'm glad you bring that up because it does cut both ways. I mean, a lot of female artists, they say, well, how can you do this as a wife or a mother? You know, I have a I know a woman who is a filmmaker and she said, you know, her husband is also a filmmaker and that he, when he goes to make a film, no one ever says, who's watching your three-year-old? When she goes to make a film, they say, they want to know who's babysitting and how the child is going to survive, you know, without her being there. And um, 
yeah, so I just, I'm, I'm glad that you, you raised that. Amanda, can yeah. I just make another, you know, I don't want to confuse realms here, and I don't want to confuse politics and art, because I think right. there's a dangerous thing to do. Um, well, but art but, is inherently well, political. It's well, not a confusion. I, I, I think it is You a can't confusion. separate the two. But I, I, think, I think there is a cause and effect here, and the cause and effect is that because we've had a moral inversion in the political community, we have had... A, a kind of new and more rigorous morality in the entertainment world and the right. artistic world. And Harvey Weinstein would not have been found out had it not been for Donald Trump, in my estimation. Harvey Weinstein operated for 25 years as a, 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 a perpetrator of sexual assault and bullying, but it was when Donald Trump became president and we realized how powerless we were in the political community because the revolution of Donald Trump is moral inversion, it's not political, that we redoubled our efforts in the artistic community. Mm -hmm. So I don't think the two are unrelated, but I think to talk about political morality and, and aesthetic morality in the same terms is, is not exactly the same thing. Donald Trump's not an artist. He's many, many things, most of them awful. He's a monster, but he's not an artist. He might disagree. Uh, I'm sure he would. <laughs> well, I, I, but I think, I think to talk about, first of all, um, when the charges um, surfaced about Bill Cosby, it was, if I'm not mistaken, uh, before Trump became the president. Um, I notice how, as you've talked about Woody Allen and Harvey Weinstein, you've talked about them a bit differently than the way you've talked about Bill Cosby, in which you were very uh, specific in. Well, Bill Cosby's been convicted of rape. I, Harvey I Weinstein, I hope, that. will be. I was the one uh, who said that. Yeah. Um, no, I said it as well. Yeah. Okay, I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, I'm listening to you. Um, <laughs> I think when you talk about the public sphere, um, particularly, and Trump is a perfect example, because we live in a society where art and culture and politics media, we're sort of often exposed to all these things at the same time. Trump is a reality television figure um, who convinced people that he was something that he was not. That's cultural. Um, to talk about that as it relates to the times we exist in, I recognize uh, Trump is not a painter or a sculptor or a musician. He probably would like to be, but I think when we're having this discussion about what's going on in Hollywood and in the culture at large, for me, all of these things are inherently connected because it goes back to where we started. Art is inherently political. It is inherently reflective of the politics of its time, the politics under which it is created. You can be specific about how that applies, but I don't think making these sort of artificial uh, uh, barriers or distinctions really works with I don't that. think they're artificial. I mean, I think art is inherently moral or immoral, one of the two, and I think we take our morality to it, and we take our politics to it, we take everything to it. The thing is that there are no general rules here, there are, because there are no general rules to the human soul. And when we're dealing with art, we're dealing with the human soul. And you know what? There are seven billion human souls in this world, and each of us individually approaches something, and we take our politics to it, and we take our life experiences to it, and we take our morality to it, and we make judgments. Whenever we have an a, aesthetic experience, we make judgments about it. And yes, you know, politics you know, invades it and becomes part of it. But you know, I, I, don't think it, I, I do think it confuses realms to talk about politics and political morality in the same sense that we talk about the art experience. Yeah, what I'd love exactly to see now is Don Giovanni for our times, <laughs> because Mozart was on, and there's one line where Don Giovanni says, there's no more fertile talent than mine. <laughs> And so he thinks he's an artist of seduction, and Kierkegaard <laughs> certainly did. But I think the last production of Don Giovanni I saw was in Rome, and it was this orchestra from Piazza Vittorio Emanuele, which is a square in Rome that's now somewhat Chinatown, but it's a group of musicians from the entire planet who play together, and what they do is take operas, and they did this crazy Carmen where Don Jose was a Brazilian with a ukulele. Carmen was 
a reggae singer who's Southern <laughs> Italian, doubled by an Albanian soprano, so just completely insane. And so what they did with Don Giovanni is make the female Don Giovanni singing, and they brought back Carmen to be Donna Elvira, and she was singing her contralto, and Don Giovanni was a soprano, and so it switched everything. And that seemed to speak about the times in Rome last year. I wonder what Mozart would do now <laughs> with that libretto that's supposed to be the arch seducer and that I find endlessly fascinating, endlessly a way to deal with some of these things. That's interesting that they that you view it differently once it's um, you know switched up like that. I was thinking about that the other day because I heard a cover of the Rolling Stones under my thumb, which is kind of a you know terrible song in many ways. Uh, great song, but terrible, terrible sentiments oh, I've sung by a woman. And it, was, it just changed the whole thing. But I want to bring up something that both Dr. Boyd and Neil have said in kind of different ways, which is that you know, there can't be a one-size-fits-all solution to this, and that their human soul is, you know, there are many variations on the human soul. Is there a kind of sliding scale or something on which we should view uh, immoral behavior? I mean, is Roman Polanski, what, you know, what he did different from what Hitchcock did, different from you know, what we've just heard about Juno Diaz, uh, Bill Cosby? I mean, where do we draw the line? I mean, does the egregiousness of the behavior somehow um, determine what's to happen with the art? Or, or does the quality of the, uh, quality of the art determine that? Like, can you just sort of speak to this, how we can't have a one-size-fits-all solution? I, I think, um, you know, there's... <clears throat> There's a sort of individual response, and then there's a maybe larger sort of societal response. Um, and those may be very different. So um, the judgment of Roman Polanski is perhaps going to be different than the judgment placed upon Juno Diaz. Mm -hmm. Um, and what they did is really different too. Yeah. What they clear. did is really yeah. different. different. And, really different. And, and, That's why I brought and, it up. And yeah. when and when they did it, mm -hmm. it was also different. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting to talk about Roman Polanski now. What I think about is Roman Polanski left the country um, with this charge hanging over his head. He got on a plane and left the country. When I think about that, I think about the fact that we have the massive uh, nation of prisoners in this society. Many of them are black or brown. They don't have the means to get on a plane and fly out of the country to escape punishment. So in one sense, I look at Roman Polanski as having got away, and then later the film industry decides enough time has passed, we want to recognize his accomplishments. To me, that is about a power imbalance. That doesn't mean I don't like Chinatown, but it means that I don't assume that Roman Polanski is going to be treated the same way as someone else because when you start making uh, moral and value judgments, when you start applying punishment, these things, go back to something you said, are ultimately based on power. And I'm not naive enough to think that everybody's ever going to be judged and evaluated the same way. It is important, and this is what I was saying earlier, it is important to point out what it is people have, been, what people have done, what they've been accused of, and sort of focusing on that, but it would be, I think, uh, really naive to assume that there's ever going to be some societal punishment that's going to apply to everybody the same way because that's not the nation that we live in and it's not the nation that we've ever lived in, which kind of ties into the point I started with about Griffith and Birth of a Nation. One of the reasons I find that as such an interesting example is because Birth of a Nation reflects America in all of its racism and the history of that racism and the place of that racism at that time in American history. So when people start asking me so many years later during the Oscar so white era about racism in Hollywood, 
I say go back to the source, from the root to the fruit. If you start with birth of a nation, it's not surprising that though it may be 2015 or 2016, people are still talking about racism in Hollywood. So as an example, I think it's important to point out the acts that people have committed or have been accused of and deal with that accordingly. But at the same time, there's this larger sort of societal sense of assessment and judgment that I think always breaks down along lines of power and are going to treat um, women differently than men are going to treat uh, minorities differently than people who represent the mainstream in terms of society. I disagree. I, I mean, I think punishment is a function of power, certainly. But again, you're an audience. Look in your own soul. You watch something. You watch a, a work of art made by somebody who may have done something reprehensible, or maybe not so reprehensible. Maybe it was Aziz Ansari who didn't seem to be to do anything particularly reprehensible, and you make a judgment about it. Now, maybe you do it on basis of race, maybe you don't. We're all individuals. We all you know, do things, assess things in our own way. But, you know, I, I think there is a, the, the, the consensus, the societal consensus that develops mm -hmm. is a relatively slow one, and, you know, it, it develops around Bill Cosby, because he's a convicted rapist. It's developed around Harvey Weinstein, who will never work again, because he is accused of repeated rape and assault. And we make judgments that we can't appreciate that work, that we can't respond to the, that work because of what we know, because of who we are. Now, that's when the consensus develops, and those people are irredeemable. But if you're asking, is there a, 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 a slide? You know, of course there's a, a slide. We know, I mean, what Juno Diaz did, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things he's been accused of is he was argumentative with a couple of women about women writers. He was argumentative. Now, you may disagree with him. I think he's wrong. But the fact of the matter is, you know, should he lose his job because he was being argumentative about how good women writers are compared to male writers? I mean, these are kinds of, these are questions that you ask yourself individually. There's no society law that does it. You individually say, can I read his book because I know he's argued with women in a way that was misogynistic? Well, maybe you can't. Or maybe you can. Or in the case of Roman Polanski. Maybe you can say that that heinous crime somehow either makes me not want to watch Chinatown again or it informs because Chinatown's about incest of a young woman and it informs the movie in a way you know art doesn't have to be ennobling and 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 uh, and, and makes you feel better it can make you feel worse and be great art does Chinatown make you feel worse because you know about Roman Polanski but still functions as a work of art and engagement for you these are questions you have to answer individually. Right. I do think, though, that a consensus does form much more swiftly now than, About certain than, than it used to because of things like you know, social media and mm -hmm. the internet and that people feel that maybe if they can... Maybe, maybe they're capable of privately enjoying something that you know, is created by someone who is reprehensible, but to say so publicly mm -hmm. or to... You know, um, well, now we can say that Mick Jagger is a jerk. And I never <laughs> liked the Rolling Stones. I never liked them because the Beatles were supreme and they were <laughs> vile and physically unattractive imitators. And so. Well, and on, on, the, on that note, that the, that the Beatles are superior to the Rolling Stones, we are going to, we are going to start what to take questions. What if you don't like either one of them? Then, <laughs> I hate to well, then, hate to cut in because I feel like we're just I don't, I, don't know that I, I don't know that I would agree with that, but I, anyway, I think we're ready to take questions. Yeah. Hi, I'm Mitch Levine, and I had the, both the privilege, the honor, and also the responsibility last year of writing and directing the University of Virginia's bicentennial commemoration. And we had to deal with Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner. Thomas Jefferson committed heinous acts. He was a rapist, and yet he's a, a, a founding father of both our country and of the very documents which give our democracy life. And it's challenging, I think, when we speak about artists, when we speak about leaders, when we think about thinkers, to engage that dichotomy. 
Uh, each one of you has said in a different way that we have to hold these people to account, mm -hmm. but we also have to take our own responsibility for the engagement we have of what they have created. In Jefferson's case, it's a nation. In Polanski's case, it's a, it's, it's a body of extraordinary film. T.S. Eliot is my favorite poet of the 20th century. I'm a Jew, and he was a horrific anti-Semite, and yet I still am inspired and moved by his art. So I ask, what does that taking of account mean? What, what standard, what opprobrium do we apply in engaging what they have made, created, lived, when we have our own personal experiences of art itself? Well, I think the key is having access to all of that information, which has not always been the case. People have not always talked about Thomas Jefferson as a racist and as a rapist. Those things were always true, but they were not part of the larger narrative. So for me, when you consider the magnitude of any thinker, artist, creative individual, it's important to recognize that all of these things can be possible at the same time. And so I think it's necessary to have access to as much information as possible and to include that information as people go about um, celebrating certain figures, it's not a contradiction to say someone accomplished very uh, noble things, yet um, based on the acts that they engaged in, they were seriously flawed, problematic people. Next question is on your right. Well, can I just say one thing to that? You know, the word that we use in the, into, in the uh, title of this, uh, the question in this discussion was appreciate. You know, appreciate is not the same thing as engaging with and loving a work of art. Uh, there was a term of Pauline Kael's, the, the late great film critic, of, uh, when she was talking about Eisenstein, and she said, I don't like him, but I have a cold admiration for his work. <laughs> And I think we can have cold admiration and appreciation for things that, because of our own experiences and, and morality and whatever, we don't love, we don't engage with in the way we do with great art. Uh, so I, I think we, we, we all make that distinction. We can admire things when our own you know, kind of, of uh, human system doesn't allow us to love it. Art gets compromised by our morality. And when we reach a point of consensus, the art, I think, is compromised out of being art. Uh, Edward Goldman, without art talk right now. And um, thank you. Can I hold it? Okay. Uh, about Leni Riefenstahl. Uh, I was absolutely mesmerized when I saw her movies and Everyone knows what her movies is all about, but her eloquence was unbelievable, and I was shocked to, to learn that she is considered one of the hundred, the most talented filmmakers of the all time. Time magazine several years ago put her on the list of 100 first movie makers. Now, uh, when you think about uh, Richard Wagner, who was favorite composer of the Hitler, and he was anti-Semite, and in Israel, for decades, his music, music was absolutely prohibited to be performed. 10, 15 years later, Israelis just turned their minds around, and he's a great composer. So, uh, if you think about gods and muses, whatever gods you believe in, they give talent to people who seemingly don't deserve it, because morally they're comprehensive. And uh, it's not questions, more kind of statement. Uh, everyone knows that if you have your roses uh, uh, growing in your garden, if you want them to be beautiful and smell well, you are not putting honey, you are putting horse manure. <laughs> I was really interested in the conversation, particularly when we touched upon intersectionality, that you mentioned that uh, we spoke of Bill Cosby and maybe a different voice than we did of uh, uh, Weinstein. And it's interesting that people that uh, were kept out of this conversation were like Jeffrey Tambor or Kevin Spacey that are very targeted, very specific um, 
demographics, we could say. I mean, Jeffrey Tambor molested trans women, and Kevin Spacey was, is gay and targeted men. And this intersectionality seems to affect all of these people. We talked about a bit on race, but how does it affect uh, sexual orientation? Why are these people talked about as often as the others? And Kevin, Kevin Spacey just got swept off the stage. It was, and he gave a great break to a friend of mine who's a um, South African director of great talent. And I guess he was also a jerk, but he also did a number of interesting, and the whole thing, was just swept under and he was put in therapy and maybe it's just that some people are kicking back. Well, I, you know, I also think it's not so much a matter of intersectionality as I think it is a matter of, I mean, when you, when you look at how we respond to things, actors have the hardest time of all because of their own art. And when we know that an actor has done something reprehensible, it's very hard to watch. I can speak for myself here. It's very hard to watch somebody. I can't watch Mel Gibson knowing there's a vicious anti-Semite and enjoy him anymore. I just can't. I can't watch Roseanne. I will not watch the Roseanne show. It's not funny to, for me, speaking for myself, to know that someone is making jokes when she loves Donald Trump, a white supremacist. It's not funny to me. So you're watching a, 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 an actor who has only his own body as his instrument, and I, at least, I can only speak for myself, respond differently, then we respond to a director, or to a writer, or to someone else. Um, also, you know, comedians, for example, have it more difficult than dramatic. You know, people who, who make drama, because we have different expectations of them. I think those who make narrative art have it more difficult because the level of engagement and the kind of engagement is different than those who make, you know, static art. So we have all of these kind of striations in my estimation, that we all, whether consciously or not, we all deal with when we're judging our own responses to a work of art. Uh, or, again, if the work of art is the person's own body. There um, a lot of these people, so Polanski was in the ghetto in Poland yeah. and went through unspeakable things. Kevin Spacey had a monstrous father. Charlie Chaplin had a monstrous childhood, and so some of these... Well, but so did Charles Manson. <laughs> and he like, didn't make art, or he thought he did. Well, but he thought he did. Um, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that have had traumatic childhood and, you know, had unfortunate events in their life. That doesn't justify you turning around and, you know, doing something uh, wrong to someone else. Um, no, and I'm not saying that. I just I think it's complicated so that sometimes these people of great talent are monstrous in part because monstrous things have happened to them, but that's just part of the complexity of their condition. And so I think it's hard. I mean, to I, think, I think there was always a certain amount of sympathy directed in Roman plant, directed uh, towards Roman Polanski because of the fact that he was with Sharon Tate. And that happened only a few years before Polanski's incident when he ultimately fled. Um, you can also, as you have pointed out, factor in his own sort of biography. So I think, uh, and you know, I mean, I've studied Polanski as thoroughly as I have many figures from that era, there's always been a certain amount of sympathy from some quarters towards Roman Polanski. I do not see that same sympathy being applied to everyone, other people who may have had difficult childhoods or what have you. So it goes back to a sort of subjectivity in that some people are judged differently just based on who they are and based on the people in positions of power when they're being judged. We're about to, to jump to your point, Ingrid, I, I read a great oh. line in preparation <laughs> for this I, that, I, that I think is, speaks to your point, which is Martha Gellhorn, you know, who was with Ernest Hemingway, said, uh, because he was a monster, he had to be a great artist. 
Hi, uh, my name's Laura Worrell, and I'm wondering how you think this conversation shifts when we're looking at academia. Um, I'm teaching an intro literature class, Juno Diaz is on my syllabus, and I feel maybe I should take him off, I don't want to, I'd like to talk to these students about craft and focus on that and maybe even talk about these stories in the context of what's happening with him right now. But as I'm sure all of you know, this is a minefield right now on college campuses. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I just did a course on the Salem witch trials and assigned Cotton Mather. And so <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 Juno Diaz doesn't have anything to answer to that's anywhere near what Cotton Mather did. So the, I think it's important with students to talk about these things and real, make them realize how complex the world is and how to make reasoned and moderate judgments, if possible. <laughs> and not just say, because Cotton Mather waffled on the Salem witch trials, he also introduced vaccination to the United States. And so he's another one of these people who's terribly flawed. And we can't sit in judgment of him in a simple way. We've got to really take account of everything that he is. So I'd say keep him in and talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to find anyone who is totally unimpeachable that you're <laughs> gonna teach, you know? They're, everybody's gonna be flawed. I mean, and also I would be remiss if we, as we talk about Juno okay. Diaz, not to say that, you know, it wasn't that just that he was argumentative, obviously he forcibly kissed someone too. I would be remiss as a woman not right. to bring that up. But, you know, a, lo a lot of people that you're gonna read have done probably a lot worse than that too. So I do think I agree with Ingrid that you probably have the discussion, you, you can have the discussion with the students. Um, I don't know, what do you, anyone else? And you can talk about fighting back and you pay a price as Anita Hill knows more than anybody else, but you don't have to put up with it either. And so Harvey Weinstein was able to do that in part because people kept letting him do it. And that means... <laughs> and people facilitated his doing it. Yeah, and all of those assistants who... Right. He had many enablers. And Trump is the president because people keep letting him do it. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, before we close, I'd like to thank the Getty, our co-presenter to this evening. We'd like to thank them for having us here tonight. Also, big thank you to all of you for coming out. We've got the post-event reception just outside the lobby on the terrace, so come on, grab a drink with us, with all of us. And finally, a big round of applause for our panelists tonight. Thank you.